As a child of the 1980s, I spent an embarrassing amount of time in video game arcades and a lot of money. I actually once found a $100 bill on the side of the road, promptly took it to an arcade in downtown Santa Rosa, turned that $100 into 400 quarters, and had a video game frenzy. From its humble beginnings, the gaming industry has expanded from cabinet arcade games to PCs and home consoles and now even smartphones. Two-thirds of adults in the U.S. and three-quarters of children play them. It makes more than the film industry, which got around $21 billion last year, and the music industry, which made $26 billion in 2021. Globally, gaming hit $192 billion in 2021 and is expected to break $200 billion this year. And it should come as no surprise that there have been rumors, urban legends, controversies, and even outright conspiracy theories about video games in the 46 years or so that they've been around. We'll take a look at some old ones and a few from more recent times as well in this episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse, Pixels, Pixels and, and Paranoia, paranoia. Video, video Game, game conspiracies. conspiracies. Thank you for listening to this episode, and don't forget that you can subscribe to this podcast, and if you like what we do, donate via our Buy Me A Coffee page. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber, filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Intruder alert! What's known as the golden age of arcade games started in 1978 with the release of Space Invaders. The next year, Galaxian, direct competition to Space Invaders, appeared as well as three games with simple line vector graphics, Lunar Lander, which I'd totally forgotten about, Asteroids, and Battlezone, which I loved. In 1980, Pac-Man hit the scene, as did Missile Command, Rally X, Wizard of War, W-O-R, and Berserk with a Z, or a Z if you're British. In Berserk, you control a man figure running around a maze shooting at robot figures who shoot at you and mock you, sometimes calling you a chicken in a format that would be extended in 1981's Castle Wolfenstein and 1982's Robotron. In 1981, a 19-year-old guy named Jeff Daly, playing Berserk, had a heart attack and dropped dead right at the machine in what would come to be known as the first game-related death. Supposedly, he died the moment he hit the score 16,660. You will note, the number 666 is hiding inside that score. 
The following year, an 18-year-old named Peter Bukowski, a friend of the late Jeff Daly, broke the top 10 score on the berserk machine he was playing and then did it again a mere 15 minutes later, and then he also suddenly died of a heart attack. And the story went round, whispered over fountain sodas, that he too had died after hitting the score 16,660. Satan Satan was was killing killing video video game game players. Most folks playing games back then were young, impressionable boys who love a good scary story. The facts are a little harder to pin down. There did seem to be a guy named Bukowski, or Burkowski as some sources have it, who was at the Friar Tucks Arcade at the River Oaks Shopping Center in a Chicago suburb, playing Berserk, who got into the top 10 twice in 15 minutes, then leaned down to drop a quarter in another machine right next to the one he was playing when he suddenly had a heart attack and died. Local newspapers suggested it was the stress of playing the game that was the cause and should we be worried. It turned out he had a rare condition, a layer of fat around his heart, and this was the cause of his unfortunate death. It seems that about six months after Bukowski's death, rumors started circulating about Jeff Daly and his satanic high score. Maybe it was even on the exact same machine. And 19-year-old Jeff Daly did die in May 1981, but in Virginia, hit by a car. He was known to be a fan of the game Berserk, but he did not know Bukowski, lived in another state, and did not die anywhere near a video game arcade. So this was an urban legend spawned and spread by the feverish imagination of overstimulated boys. Weirdly, in March 1988, 17-year-old Edward Clark Jr. and 16-year-old Pedro Roberts got into an argument about whose quarter had been left on the machine. That's how you used to indicate that you got the next turn playing. And that machine was the exact same berserk machine Bukowski had been playing back in 1982. Roberts was kicked out of the arcade but waited outside for Clark, attacked him, and stabbed him to death. If you'll forgive me, he'd gone berserk. So maybe that machine was cursed Cursed after all. A couple of offbeat stories conflate together to become the first video game urban legend. As a matter of record, by the way, the actual first game-related death occurred in Ontario, Canada in 1974 when a man named Charlie Curry accidentally electrocuted himself plugging in a TV game with ungrounded electrical outlets. And there's a story from 1979 or 1980 that a small child had grabbed the controls of the submarine arcade game Fire One and was hanging from them and his extra weight caused the machine to topple over on him, crushing him to death. Lavender Lavender Town. Town Berserk wouldn't be the only game blamed for deaths. In 1996, the role-playing video game Pokemon Red and Green came out for the first-generation Game Boy, the first in what would be a massively successful series. It was actually two versions. There was a red one and a green one, both released in Japan and elsewhere, and then later in the year, a new blue edition was released. Players wander the Kanto region of Japan looking at 151 different Pokemon or pocket monster species scattered among the human settlements, some of which were based on real places and others not. One of the fictional locations is called Lavender Town, which is where dead Pokemon get buried. And when you went there, you heard some truly creepy, discordant, chiptune background music by Yunichi Masuda, often cited as one of the scariest video game themes ever.
but listening to this music for too long could, however, cause a series of ailments, nosebleeds, headaches, and even advanced paranoia. Young players of the game between 7 and 12 years old were especially susceptible, and some suffered so much that they took their own lives. Around 3,000 children in Japan killed themselves in what came to be called Lavender Town Syndrome, which is a weird and sad tale, or would be if it were true. The source for this is actually a 2010 creepypasta that first showed up on 4chan. Since part of the conceit of creepypastas is to make them seem real, people added to the story, creating pictures, fake obituaries, and more. A lot of this looked pretty realistic, plus in order to fact-check things, you'd have to be pretty fluent in Japanese. And then some folks, who didn't know that it wasn't real, took it as real and ran with the ball, hinting darkly that Nintendo was working with the Japanese government on some weird secret mind-control scheme. In 1997, when some people experienced epileptic seizures while watching an episode of Pokemon's first animated series, this just added more proof that something was terribly amiss in the land of the pocket monsters. In 2020, Matt Rooney, writing for IGN Southeast Asia, put the Lavender Town Syndrome in the number 6 spot of his 10-item list of best video game urban legends ever. Number 10 on that list is the Madden Curse. The Madden, Madden Curse. Curse Sports fans can be a superstitious lot. Gotta wear my lucky hat to the game or my team will lose. My team lost because I washed my car, or because I didn't wash my car, or because we have meatloaf for dinner the night before, or whatever. And some fans started noticing a disturbing pattern with Electronic Arts Madden NFL console games. Running back Garrison Hurst had had a banner year in 1998 playing for the San Francisco 49ers, gaining seven touchdowns and rushing more than 1,500 yards in the season with an average ball carry of 5.1 yards. And his performance included an astonishing opening day 96-yard game-winning touchdown in overtime against the New York Jets. So EA decided to put them on the cover of their 1999 edition called Madden NFL 2000. They always released things for the following year. The Madden NFL series was an increasingly popular console game, but before this, it had always been a picture of former Oakland Raiders coach turned sports commentator John Madden on the cover. Hearst would be featured on the PAL version, though Madden remained on the North American versions of the sports simulator game. Then in the first play of the divisional playoffs in the new season against the Atlanta Falcons, Hearst broke his ankle and then had complications during his subsequent surgery. He would be unable to play for the next two years and almost had to quit the game of football for good. So say some articles. However, it was Dorsey Levens on the PAL version cover, according to various Wikipedia pages, who was let go by the Green Bay Packers the following year. And other sources say, no, it was Barry Sanders, who abruptly retired after appearing on the game box. And still others say that Sanders was supposed to appear on the PAL boxes, but then retired so suddenly they put Levens on instead. Origin stories are often murky, but after that, the curse comes clear. In the year 2000, EA decided that from now on, they would always have a major American football star on the cover. A decision Madden himself was not super happy with. Sort of a gaming version of getting on a box of Wheaties. Running back for the Tennessee Titans, Eddie George was on the Madden NFL 2001 box. 
And in the playoff game at season's end, George fumbled the ball badly and despite previously achieving fantastic stats, went into something of a slump and never got more than 3.4 yards average in a season for the rest of his career. Vikings quarterback Duante Culpepper gets the next year for Madden 2002. He was severely injured, fumbled a whopping 16 times in the season, later got injured again, and basically declined ever since appearing on the game box. The next two years saw similar occurrences. Running back Marshall Falk from the St. Louis Rams was on Madden 2003 and completely fell apart that season. Atlanta Falcons quarterback Michael Vick was on 2004's cover, but fractured his fibula one week after the game hit the shelves. He would later get in all sorts of hot water selling marijuana, stealing an expensive watch from a TSA screener at an airport, and possibly hosting a dogfighting ring. Ray Lewis of the Baltimore Ravens was next, and while he suddenly seemed to be unable to catch an interception and the Ravens didn't make it to the playoffs, he still had a pretty decent year. Curse broken, perhaps? Madden 2006 had Philly Eagles quarterback Donovan McNabb, and while his previous season had been amazing, he totally tanked this time. Madden 07 had Sean Alexander of the Seattle Seahawks, who likewise took a nosedive that year and would be out of the NFL entirely two years later. So, when rumors started circulating that EA was going to go with running back LaDanian Tomlinson from the San Diego Chargers for Madden 08, some fans got nervous. Petitions started going around chat rooms and via email, and one person set up a SaveLTFromMadden.com website. Tomlinson ended up not doing the cover, so instead it went to Tennessee Titans quarterback Vince Young, who had a not-so-great year, missed an entire game, and ended up benched. For the 0-9 game, it was Green Bay Packers quarterback Brett Favre, who after the photo shoot for the box suddenly quit that team and moved over to New York, where he managed to throw 22 interceptions and injure his shoulder. He then went over to Minnesota, where he played two more seasons and then retired. For 2010, two players were on the cover, Larry Fitzgerald, who had a great season, and Troy Palomalu, who got injured and missed 11 of the 16 games in that season. More fans clamored to do something about this curse. It seemed every time a player ended up on the cover of the game, they tanked it, got injured, or started a dogfighting ring. And besides, some noticed that some teams had multiple cover players and others had none. Was Electronic Arts somehow aware of the curse and targeting key players or certain teams? So EA said, okay, starting with Madden 11, it would be the fans who got to choose who went on the cover. The fans chose New Orleans Saint quarterback Drew Brees, who had a pretty subpar season, though the Saints did get to the playoffs, which they lost. Madden 12's cover player Peyton Hills from the Cleveland Browns got injured and missed six games, and so it would go, kind of. Of the next eight players featured on the cover, three would have great seasons, especially Madden 20's Patrick Mahomes, who took the Kansas City Chiefs to Super Bowl victory over the 49ers. An article from CBS Sports finds the tally intriguing. Between 1999 and 2009, nine of the 10 players would seem to have been cursed, but only six of the 11 players over the next 10 years, 11 because there was that two-person cover in 2010, were cursed. So maybe the curse was slowing down. Although it had been noted for the 2015 version of the game, EA made a promo trailer that showed the New England Patriots beating the Seattle Seahawks in the Super Bowl 28-24. And on Groundhog Day 2015, that is exactly what happened in Super Bowl 49. Coincidence. Coincidence.
Kill Switch. A lot of the video game subculture thrives on rumors. Oh, did you hear about the secret levels in this game? You know, there's a cheat code that makes you invincible and so on. And then there are sometimes whole games that are shrouded in mystery. Take Kill Switch, a 1989 game for home computers developed by the Karvina Corporation in communist Czechoslovakia. Only 5,000 copies were ever made, and so very few people had actually ever played it. But it was, to say the least, a memorable experience for those that had. The game's story starts with a woman named Porto who wakes up in darkness with injuries to her elbows and no memories. She learns she's in a deep coal mine that she once worked in, but that it had been shut down due to a number of creepy monsters now living down there. Dead workers, devils, coal golems, and the like. Sometimes, her size would change because she had inhaled some odd fumes, making it harder and harder to navigate the tight tunnels. As she learns more of the backstory, she learns that a company called Sovatik was sent in to increase productivity, which they would do by stabbing workers who were slow. A bunch of machines were built to protect the workers from the sadistic bureaucrats, but these were machines after all, and so they accidentally targeted everyone in the mine, unable to differentiate between the abused and the abusers. At a certain point in the game, the player has the option to switch from playing Porto to playing Ghast, an invisible demon that's almost impossible to control because you can't see it. If this choice is made, Porto's storyline no longer becomes accessible. And the craziest part of Kill Switch is that it can only be played once. When the story ends, or when the character being played dies, the game automatically deletes itself from your hard drive and reformats the disc, rendering it unusable. It would also reformat the disc if you tried to copy it. A totally original idea, and one that got gamers excited when they first started hearing about it in the mid-1990s. Since there were so few copies in existence, and you had to buy two copies of the game if you wanted to see both endings, one for Porto, one for Gas, people started writing to the Carvina Corporation, offering sometimes enormous sums of money for copies. Finally, in 2005, a sealed copy went up for auction, purchased by Tokyo resident Yamamoto Ryuchi for $773,000. It was rumored that this was the last copy anywhere, so he decided to videotape his playthrough and post it on the internet for everyone to enjoy. But only one short segment of this video managed to make it up onto the web which showed Yamamoto Ryuchi, exhausted-looking, sitting in front of his computer, sobbing. That video clip then vanished shortly after it appeared. However, it turns out there is no company called the Carvina Corporation, though there is a coal mining town in northern Moravia called Carvina, near Ostrova, and that this game, Kill Switch, never actually existed. It comes from the short story, Kill Switch, by Hugo and Nebula-nominated and Locus-winning speculative fiction writer Catherine M. Valente in her 2013 story collection, The Melancholy of Mecha Girl. She writes what she jokingly refers to as myth-punk. So even though it was a short story that somebody decided to spread around either inadvertently or on purpose as an actual story, this did not stop people making video clips of the game or what they imagined the game to be like, and eventually some fans actually wrote their own versions of Kill Switch. So a short story sort of got inadvertently turned into a creepypasta, this online horror fiction genre where a story is presented as fact and then built on by others, which then actually got made into a genuine game. 
Polybius. There was a persistent rumor in 1980s arcades that various military organizations monitored video game players with an eye to recruiting the best ones. Some said it was all a subconscious conditioning exercise designed to make a career in the military appealing to the new generation, while others said, no, I heard of a guy who got the top score on Battlezone or whatever it was, and now he's in the Army or in the Air Force or in the CIA. Then in 1984, the movie The Last Starfighter came out, in which teenager Alex Rogan gets the highest score ever on an arcade game called Starfighter and then is contacted by the game's inventor. It turns out the game was a recruiting tool to find soldiers in an interstellar war, and Alex is just what they have been looking for. I mean, what young kid didn't go absolutely crazy at this idea? Be good at a game, and then you get to go to space and meet aliens? Yes, yes please. please. And so back into the arcades we all went, dropping our quarters, hoping that maybe it might all be true. But the apotheosis of all of this is the story of the cabinet arcade game Polybius, which showed up in a handful of locations around Portland, Oregon in 1981. This unusual puzzle shooter, really just abstract geometric shapes and patterns, sort of a proto-tempest, featured unusual strobing effects that caused some players to fall into hypnotic trances where they would lose large chunks of time. Sometimes players would report memory loss, nightmares, and amnesia, and some even had the urge to commit suicide. But the flashy lights also induced epileptic seizures in a few, and so one night, men dressed all in black suits and sunglasses went around the city and removed all the Polybius games. What had that all been about? Speculation ran through a number of possibilities. That it was a CIA-funded mind control device. That it was a DARPA project as a test of psychoactive machines. Some said they'd seen these creepy men in black coming around before all the games were removed, collecting the memory cards, but paying no attention to the quarters inside the machines. Interestingly, in 1985, there had been an offbeat cabinet console game called Polyplay made by an East German company named VEB Polytechnic. This was the only game to come out of the GDR, and it actually was eight separate games. A sort of Robotron clone, a Pac-Man clone, a shooting gallery game, basically a carnival clone, a skiing game, a car racing game, a memory card game, a game where burst water pipes are flooding a room, and another one where you move the East German cartoon character Pittiplotch and the Czech cartoon mole Krtek through a maze made of flowers. Perhaps tales of Polybius somehow got mixed up with this very real, though unusual and impossible to find in the U.S., game that came out of communist Europe. Stories of Polybius circulated throughout the 80s and 90s and beyond. It got referenced in a Simpsons episode, in a video for the 2019 Nine Inch Nails song Less Than on the EP Ad Violence, and even in the Marvel TV show Loki. A listing for it appeared in February 2000 on the coinop.org website, which maintains a database of all video games from back in the day. They said that they'd had some word that perhaps the game had been made in Germany by a company called Zinnislution, and also one of their staff members was flying to Kiev to do further research. That German word Zinnislution is a made-up word, but it would basically translate to something like senses delete. This coinop.org entry seems to be the first actual reference to the game anywhere. 
Then an article called Secrets and Lies appeared in the September 2003 issue of GamePro magazine, written by Dan Electro. The article looked at a number of game-related rumors, like that there was a Tomb Raider cheat code that would render Lara Croft completely topless, which was not true, though there was a cheat code called Juggy for the game Blood Rain that would make the sexy female protagonist's breasts enormous. And supposedly, if you tried to put in this topless Lara Croft cheat code into Tomb Raider in later versions of the game, her character would explode, which is actually pretty funny. But the article also found that stories of Polybius were, quote, inconclusive. But after that GamePro article got picked up elsewhere, people started coming forward claiming to have seen or played the game. Screenshots started showing up on websites, just still shots, not video, of gameplay. Then fans started making gameplay vids, but none of them matched one another, so they were clearly just fan-made. Someone even made a fake Zinuslution website. In 2006, a man named Stephen Roach, based in the Czech Republic, claimed he was one of the coders of Polybius, but this could not be verified by anyone. So a journalist named Kat Despira looked into Roach's claims in 2015 for an article about Polybius on her blog, Retro Bitch. It turns out that Stephen Roach and his wife, Glenda, had been police officers in Utah who'd fallen in with a group called WWASPs, which stands for Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools, headquartered there in Utah. This group works with several companies running what they say are behavior modification camps for teenagers. One such behavior modification center was located in Mexico, and they also had a branch in the Czech Republic in 1998 called the Morava Academy in Brno, the second city in that country. Roach and his wife have been arrested two years earlier for running a facility for teen girls called Sunrise Beach that was found to really be more like a prison and one that engaged in practices that sometimes bordered on torture. Among the charges against them were enforced imprisonment, enforced starvation, physical abuse, forcing people to eat their own vomit, and much, much worse. They fled to Brno, where they started it all up again, until they were arrested in November 1998, along with two Czechs, for continuing the same practices. W. Wasps would eventually fold after a Utah district court found them and all their partners guilty of fraud, unlawful confinement, and child trafficking because they would frequently move teenagers between this facility or that one. So this guy, this sadist Stephen Roach, who said he helped create Polybius, clearly was just trying to piggyback to gain some kind of weird small-scale fame. It would seem that Steve and Glenda Roach really lived up to, or down to, their name. That GamePro article is really what kicked the whole Polybius thing off, and it all seemed to have something to do with a man named Kurt Kohler. Kohler had started CoinOp.org, which is where the very first mention of the game comes from, and was something of a prankster. Back in the early 90s, a rumor showed up on Usenet groups about a Taco Bell employee who refused to accept a $2 bill because he thought there was no such thing. The author of this post was a Peter Lepic, but then turned out to be someone whose handle was Captain Sarcastic. In 2005, the Baltimore Sun published an article saying basically the same thing, except that the man with the $2 bill had been arrested since the dumb local cops also didn't know what to make of a $2 bill, which, by the way, is a real thing. They're just really rare. I'm sure Captain Sarcastic was quite happy that his fake story still survived 12 years later. And, it turns out, Captain Sarcastic is really 
Kurt Kohler, and it would seem that Kohler tried to generate interest in his coinop.org website by sending a tip to GamePro about this game Polybius, hoping the exposure would make people visit his website. British game enthusiast Stuart Brown, who runs the Ahoy YouTube channel, communicated with Kohler. Kurt was cryptic, saying that the listing on coinop.org had been there since the very first day of the site's existence and that the wording was, quote, very specific. Brown went back and looked at it, noting some off-word choices, way too many commas, and a couple of misspellings. Maybe there was a cipher code buried in there somewhere? If so, Brown couldn't tease it out. Anyway, Kurt Kohler is probably the guy behind the entire thing, a combination of prank and promotion for his website. He took ideas from different sources, like that FBI agents really had been hanging around the Portland and Seattle areas in 1981, investigating an arcade owner who was rigging his games and a burglary ring being run out of the back of another arcade. So just enough truth to jog local people's memories a bit, which then added to the legend. But this sort of thing played into the whole moral panic that conservatives were having since the earliest days of gaming. Video game violence leads to real world violence, said people who previously said the same thing about violence in movies and TV shows, and yet no link had been found. So now the boogeyman was video games, and the occasional actual epileptic seizure induced by strobe effects was taken as more proof that these here things are dangerous to individual well-being and society at large. With that kind of thing floating around in the zeitgeist, the story of Polybius was not that hard to swallow. Nowadays, fans have actually created versions of a Polybius-type game. And in 2016, Llamasoft came out with their own version of Polybius for PlayStation 4 and PlayStation VR. But no one has ever found a ROM disc or cabinet version of the, quote, original game because it never existed. But it's still fun to think about. Those who want more can always try the seven-part Radiotopia Showcase podcast pseudo-documentary, The Polybius Conspiracy, which they are hoping to crowdfund into a film version as well. It contains some clear nods to the Blair Witch Project and other augmented reality type things, all of which get their start with the Ong's Hat story mentioned in a previous episode about interdimensional travelers. Drowned God. On January 10th, 2007, a grim discovery was made in a small home on the island of West Burra, part of the Scalloway Islands, which in turn are part of the Shetland Islands in Scotland. 47-year-old writer and cartoonist Richard Horn, who went by the pen name Harry Horse, was found on the floor holding the body of his wife, Amanda. She'd been suffering from multiple sclerosis, and Horse had apparently stabbed her more than 40 times, leaving the broken-off tip of one knife in her body and then finishing the job with a second knife. He then killed their dog and cat and then stabbed himself 47 times, as well as cutting off his own genitals. The cause of death for both people was bleeding to death. Yikes! What the heck was going on there? Harry Horace had been born in the West Midlands city of Coventry, but moved to Scotland when he was 18. That's when he took up the pen name. In addition to writing about the Loch Ness Monster and a number of children's books, drawing political cartoons for The Scotsman, Scotland on Sunday, The Sunday Herald, The Observer, and The Independent, illustrating a 100-year anniversary of Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and being the lead singer of a band called Swamp Trash, 
1983, he found himself in need of money, so he forged a manuscript that he said was written by the 19th century poet Richard Henry Horne, whose best-known work is an epic poem titled Orion. Notice, Richard Henry Horne was the poet's name, and Harry Horse's real name is Richard Horne. He tried to sell this manuscript as the genuine article, but failed to do so. Time passed, and in 1996, he thought that maybe the best way to get this pretty amazing story out was to develop a point-and-click computer game, kind of like The Seventh Guest or Mist. And so, Drowned God, Conspiracy of the Ages came to be. In the game, you travel through history, interacting with various famous people, learning the dark truth that humans had been created by an alien race from a star in the constellation of Orion, and these aliens have been guiding human events for thousands of years. Much of their advanced knowledge was lost in the Great Flood, more was destroyed when the place it was being stored, the Library of Alexandria, burned down, the Knights Templar held some secrets, the Philadelphia Experiment shows up in there, so does the Roswell Crash, the Holy Grail, the Ark of the Covenant, King Arthur, the Man of the Iron Mask, the Bermuda Triangle, and much, much more. The Tarot Cards and the Tree of Life from Kabbalah are also key elements in the game. It's a highly detailed and rather intellectual game, and frankly, I wish I'd written it. Sadly, some reviewers found technical problems, and the sheer difficulty of some of the puzzles seriously hampered what could have been and should have been a runaway success. I mean, the story's all there, clearly taking more than a page out of Umberto Eco's astonishing but complex 1988 conspiracy novel Foucault's Pendulum, and some nods to The X-Files, which had started up in 1993. So there was already kind of a market, as seven years later, the success of Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code would show. But alas, it just wasn't meant to be. Inscape, who developed the game, didn't release patches to fix the many bugs, and then the company was bought the next year by Graphics Zone. Sales languished, and a promised sequel never got made. And then, with his bizarre death in 2007, it would now never get done. Well, internet speculation ensued. That death didn't sound like a murder-suicide. It sounded almost like a punishment. I mean, who cuts off their own genitals? Why kill the pets? How on earth can a person stab themselves 47 times? Plus, the front door had been left open, as if the killers had simply not bothered to close it. Doesn't that sound more like, I don't know, murder? But who would want to murder this guy and his wife and their pets out in the middle of nowhere on a tiny island that only has 900 residents? Well, mused some, what if the plot of the Drowned God game was in fact a true story, or at least partly true? Wouldn't those who wanted it all kept quiet have been pretty angry about his blowing their cover? Of course, the next obvious question is why the evildoers waited 11 years to extract their revenge. Well, maybe they came from Orion and it takes a long time to get here. It was noted that an official fatal accident inquiry had not been released, which smells of maybe a cover-up. This is probably because the family had not at first been privy to the gruesome details of the killings and had tried to spin it as a case of tragic love that the two were unable to continue as Amanda degenerated from MS and they took an overdose of medication, killing themselves Romeo and Juliet style. When the family was told what had actually happened, they didn't believe it. And the autopsy report showed no drugs or alcohol in Harry's blood except for a tiny amount of an antidepressant. 
The story got around that uh, the evening of the murder-suicide, two friends from New Zealand had been visiting, and they noted that Harry was acting strangely, saying things like, It's a lovely night for a killing. In the previous months, Harry had been uninspired in his work, getting more withdrawn, plus he had to care for his wife, who was degenerating. Their beloved dog, Rue, had died, and while Mandy was quite upset about this, Harry seemed to go another way, withdrawing emotionally and yet lashing out at unpredictable times. There had been an incident at a local art gallery where he had insulted the curators for having pretentious paintings. He argued with a social worker about Mandy's disability benefits and punched a hole in the wall for emphasis. He had frequent and increasingly heated arguments with his family and finally broke off all contact with them. He wrote that the island he and his wife had moved to for a tranquil life was feeling more like a, quote, living hell. The two friends left at Harry's insistence, but returned the next day to check up on the couple and get a jacket one of them had forgotten. They're the ones who found the bodies. They said that the front door was open and that when they walked in, they saw the dead animals and then they moved into the next room where there was blood everywhere. They also noted that Harry had been stabbed in the genitals repeatedly, but so had Amanda. The doctor who was called to the scene was so horrified by the tableau that he quit practicing medicine altogether. Some people involved in the case, including a high court judge and a forensic psychologist, believed the couple had in fact been murdered. Mandy's father also thought so, or at least he started thinking that about a year after the deaths. The whole story, that of the drowned god, along with Harry Horse himself, would seem to have been some of the inspiration for the groundbreaking Black Mirror interactive film Bandersnatch. Like that Charlie Brooker work, Drowned God has multiple endings, or at least it was supposed to, but problems during development ended up only allowing two different endings. Do I think somebody out there needs to write a limited series about this entire tale of the Drowned God and Harry Horse? Yes. Yes, I do. Omicron, Omicron, the Nomad nomad Soul. soul. A PC game for Windows came out in 1999 and Dreamcast in 2000 called The Nomad Soul. But what has the tongues a-wagon today is that the North American version was called Omicron, with a K, The Nomad Soul. Omicron, I think you can probably see where this is going to go. Because Because Omicron Omicron is a variant variant of COVID-19 and COVID is a new world world order order trick and Bill Gates, Gates, who started Microsoft, is behind it all and COVID is fake and they just want to put tracking chips in your body or if it is real, then Bill Gates is still to blame and I will tweet about all of this using my phone, which is itself a tracking device. Of course... Windows was the format it was released on, but Microsoft had nothing to do with the game itself. It was developed by the Maverick Paris-based Quantic Dream and released by British Eidos Interactive, part of the Japanese Square Enix group. The game featured wild musical genius David Bowie, who co-wrote the entire score, which would end up becoming the bulk of his album, Hours. And it also featured him as a computer-generated figure that warns the main character that, that their soul is trapped by a demon named Astaroth, who thrives on suffering and who runs the city of Omicron, where it's all set. Omicron is a dense city underneath a huge crystal dome and is itself part of a video game that Astaroth the demon has created to trick people into surrendering their souls, which he then tortures in order to gain power. Later, this David Bowie character warns the citizens of the city that the government is using them as puppets and the only choice is to rise up and become one of the awakened ones. 
Well, 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 that sure is thought-provoking, especially to people like Gracie Cuban, who likes to tweet about Big Pharma, the elites, the deep state, and insert other alt-right talking points here. On December 1st, 2021, she somehow came across word that this game existed and posted that warning of the corrupt government clip on Twitter. This same clip would be shared by others, while some people responded reasonably, like, uh, you know, Bill Gates didn't make the game, it just runs on Windows. Others tweeted things like, quote, Sorry, the moronic new strain and Bill Gates' demon-catching souls game by the same name is not a coincidence unless you are a sheep. Others took it further, claiming the game came out in 1999, and so they, whoever they are, had been planning the whole pandemic for 20 years or more before unleashing it at that seafood market in China in 2019. The game was nominated for Best PC Adventure Game of the Year from GameSpot, CNET Game Center, and The Electric Playground, and also got a nomination for Story and Character Development at the Interactive Achievement Awards. The graphics were praised, though long load times and many glitches interfered with the overall game experience. It is still available on Steam, and all this conspiracy talk has actually boosted its popularity. The alt-right would be at it again in January 2020, just a couple of weeks after the announcement of the new coronavirus strain dubbed COVID-19. See, the story started going around the virus had come from Wuhan, China, not from a food market, but from a biotech lab called RLSW. Eagle-eyed watchers noticed the company's logo looked eerily similar to the logo for the Umbrella Corporation, a company that accidentally releases a zombie virus into Raccoon City in the game series Resident Evil. That fictional company's employee pledge is, Obedience breeds discipline. Discipline breeds unity. Unity breeds power. Power is life. So therefore, obedience is life. Also, people noticed, the word raccoon is the word corona with the letters rearranged. Except that raccoon actually has two C's in it, so no. Though some American dictionaries do allow for the 1C spelling. And the company in question is actually Shanghai Rulan Bao Husan Biotech Limited, who do work on immune systems and genetic testing in Shanghai, not Wuhan, which is 500 miles away to the west. But yes, the two logos are quite similar. Because sometimes the world of fiction and the world of art cross one another. And speaking of zombies and pandemics, the last thing we'll look at is the corrupted blood incident. Launched in 2004, World of Warcraft is a fantasy MMORPG, or massively multiplayer online role-playing game. Emphasis on the massive, with it reaching 12 million subscribers by 2010 and grossing $9.23 billion by 2017. There are currently 1.4 million players on WOW, as World of Warcraft is called, making it the third largest game of its type. But it's the most active player base of all the MMORPGs. Starting on September 13, 2005, just under 10 months after its launch, something strange started happening to characters in the remote jungle area of Zulgarub, a new game region that had just been added. Hakar the Soul Flayer was the final boss in these parts, and during the battle, he would cast a spell called Corrupted Blood at characters. 
This reduced the targeted character's health, greatly reducing it. Nailing characters for between 263 and 337 points of damage every two seconds for four seconds, or at least that's what it was designed to do. Now, a character of, say, level 60 probably has three to 4,000 health. So it's a hit, not that terrible a one, but over time, it can really add up. And the damage would spread from the character affected to any other characters standing near them. And if Hakkar was defeated during Corrupted Blood's effects, the effects would end. However, some people panicked when they got hit with a spell that took a sizable chunk of health and repeated that over time, and so they fast-traveled out of the area. Companion non-player characters some people had collected, like pets and warlock minions, could also be affected, and some players would cast a spell to sort of freeze their companions so the effects of Corrupted Blood would not continue taking away their health. Now, Corrupted Blood was supposed to stop once Hawkar died, but for pets and warlocks in this suspended animation, the programming forgot to inform them. So once they were mobile again, they still had it, though they weren't taking damage themselves. They had become asymptomatic carriers, disease vectors, spreading it everywhere. With that and people fast-traveling out of the Zulgurub region to other parts of the game, corrupted blood spread everywhere. Also, for some reason, outside of that region, the four-second time limit suddenly went away. The effects just kept on going, taking large amounts of health until characters died. And then one player, who had fast-traveled to a major city, summoned their infected pet, and you had a full-blown pandemic on your hands. Suddenly, players everywhere saw their characters losing giant chunks of health, which in turn spread the problem to everyone around them. An average level character would die in 60 to 90 seconds. I mean, okay, it's not the worst thing in the world since the dead characters all respawn, but corrupted blood also seemed to damage or corrupt many of the items they had. So once they came back, their items had reduced effectiveness or sometimes had been rendered completely unusable. City after city and region after region fell victim to the plague. Players started monitoring the spread, moving their characters away from vector centers. Some players who were only part-time had heard about it on the web and then logged in to see what all the fuss was, getting their characters infected and further spreading the problem. An ad hoc system started arising from the players. Sometimes infected would stand at the edge of a town and warn others to stay away. Others became town criers, updating everyone near them on what was happening, and still others self-quarantined. But unusually, even NPCs or non-player characters also got infected once it had escaped its original region. And with nobody controlling them, they just wandered through the game, spreading the problem further. Healing spells did not work, though paladins could get rid of it in someone else, but at the cost of becoming infected themselves. And some people got their characters purposely infected and then purposely went to densely populated areas in order to sow chaos, because they thought it was funny. These people became known as griefers. And online forums and chats were filling up with updates, but also with mis- and disinformation, which also spread like a virus throughout the community. Blizzard, the company behind World of Warcraft, started working on some stopgap fixes within three days of it first breaking out, putting up large barriers around cities, creating quarantine zones. They even restarted the servers on a rolling basis, but Corrupted Blood came back anyway because when infected players returned to now sterilized areas, they thought it was safe, but they were still infected, and so those areas were no longer safe. 
After a week, Blizzard finally had to do a hard reset of all servers, bringing the state of the world back to how it was just before the first infection. A couple of hot fixes later, and they had solved the problem by October 8th. The entire incident lasted three and a half weeks. The whole thing actually looked a lot like a real-world epidemic, so the CDC contacted Blizzard, asking them for data to help them fine-tune their own response plans. Unlike, say, computer models of disease spreads, the events of the corrupted blood incident included human reactions, not all of which were salutary. Griefer attacks were likened to bioterrorists and greatly informed future real-world models. However, Dr. Eric Lofgren, talking to PC Gamer in March 2020, went back to a 2007 research paper on the incident, and he said that griefers didn't really have a direct analog in the real world since there really aren't people going around purposely infecting others. However, quote, Willfully ignoring your potential to get people sick is pretty close to that. Epidemics are a social problem. Minimizing the seriousness of something is sort of real-world griefing. Gaming will continue to increase in market share and the graphics are approaching something like photorealism. This will no doubt spill over into the film industry and the real world, at least the online world, in a number of unexpected ways, and there will almost certainly be more myths and conspiracy theories involving games and gamers in the future. Gaming is certainly a unique storytelling platform, with the ability to weave incredibly rich, deep, detailed narratives and offer at least some choice to participants. At its best, it's like cinema, literature, and live theater all combined together to have a baby. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.